Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, we're happy to have in the studio Assemblyman Tony Thurman, who is running for State Superintendent of Public Instruction. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke to his opponent, Marshall Tuck. You can listen to that episode online at edsource.org slash podcast. We wanted to hear from Assemblyman Thurman directly. He is a two-term Democratic Assemblyman representing Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and surrounding communities. Thurman is a social worker by training. He worked with foster children and other kids struggling in various ways. He was also on the West Contra Costa Unified School District Board and then on the Richmond City Council before running for the legislature. Welcome, Tony Thurman. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Assemblyman Thurman, over $40 million has gone into this campaign on both sides, on your side and uh, on the side of your opponent, Marshall Tuck. The bulk of the funds have come from independent expenditure committees, which can take unlimited funds, and usually they're from very wealthy people. The committee set up by the California Teachers Association to support your campaign has attracted about $10 million, and uh, Marshall Tux has attracted about $20 million. What do you think these donors are expecting from you? Is there any kind of quid pro quo? The short answer is no, but what I make of that is that we need campaign finance reform and publicly financed campaigns, which I've you know, advocated for, which I've worked towards, which I've supported legislation to. And quite frankly, I wish that all that money was being spent directly on helping our kids. That money should be going to our schools. You know, I'm proud to be supported by educators and by working people who feel that public education is under attack. And um, they're, you know, sharing their hard-earned dues money to, you know, support public education. You know, I just think it's interesting that the individuals who are uh, supporting my opponent are the same individuals who have supported people like Secretary DeVos and Donald Trump. And I think it's important that the superintendent be someone who stands up to them, that uh, Trump and DeVos are talking about cutting public education in California. And I think that we should have a superintendent who stands up to those interests. And if you look at my voting record, uh, you'll see that even groups that have supported me, like teacher unions or other unions, I always vote independently, and I do what's best for kids, and I'm going to continue to do that. I'm proud to be supported by educators and not billionaires. I think that we need to stand against anything that looks like privatization of public education, and I'll fight against that. And my bottom line is I'm going to do all I can to support 6 million students in this state. The the support that I care the most about are our voters in this state, and that's where I'm placing all my energy. So your opponent, of course, says he, like you, wants to increase spending for public schools. And you said he implied that perhaps the heat would be a cutter. Oh, well, I've made it clear that I'm going to campaign to uh, generate permanent funding sources uh, for our schools. Uh, There'll be a ballot measure in 2020 um, that if it qualifies and is supported by the voters would generate another $11 billion in permanent revenue for the state. And it's estimated that five to six billion of that could go to K-12 education. I want to be superintendent and be the superintendent who campaigns to help educate voters that that would create a way to close a loophole in Prop 13 that would require big corporations to pay more in property taxes, but would not require working people and middle class people and seniors to pay any more. That measure actually would uh, shield uh, small business owners and uh, seniors and homeowners from paying any more in taxes. And I think we need permanent funding sources for education. Our funding has fluctuated. When our revenue fluctuates, we see cuts to education. 
I'll put together a working group of educators and business leaders and government leaders to come up with other ways to generate permanent revenue for education in our state and, and, and help California get to where we should be. Right now, we're being outspent by states like New York, who spend, in some cases, twice what we spend in California. And I think our kids are number one, and we should spend uh, as if they are number one. Let's talk about getting down the facts, which okay. is that research project that came out recently from Stanford and Pace, the nonprofit. What stood out from you, to you from that studies that you think deserve attention, if not action? Well, I think that uh, getting down to facts, too, talked very openly about how California's uh, schools are underfunded and compared to other states, uh, you know, significantly uh, underfunded. And I think, again, we've got to move. You know, this state is uh, the fifth wealthiest economy in the world, and we're 46 in per pupil spending. We've got to, we've got to move the, the needle on that. We've got to figure out ways to do a better job of how we make data available to Californians to know how our schools are doing and how we link the data from our K-12 systems with our early education systems. You know, As a legislator, I've worked to put a billion dollars into early education in this state, and I want us to do a better job of aligning what we do for early education so that we can close our achievement gap. And I want to work with the next governor to create a real universal preschool program. Uh, those are the kinds of things that the superintendent should be doing. And I think that the report said, in its own words, that there's some things that are going well, but there's much, much more work to be done. And I would agree with that. I think there's a great deal of work to do, and I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and get that work done. So when you were here in May, you said, you know, quoting you, that you needed to spend some time looking under the hood of the California Department of Education before really deciding what to do if you're elected. Well, researchers looked under the hood, and when they did, they found really an undersized engine, so to speak, and it needs more than an oil change. There's certainly a lot of capable, hardworking folks at CDE, but they found that it was underpaid, underfunded. So, you know, assuming, Tony, you can't rebuild a department in a year or two if you were elected, what would your priorities be for that department to put it in a leadership position? I would work to help to rebuild the budget for the department, but that will require building credibility and building trust for a governor and a legislature to invest any more money in that department. There has to be a sense that that department is managing in the right direction. And so it will take time and it can't happen overnight. But I do believe that it has to be properly resourced to support hundreds of districts across the state. And, you know, I'm honored that Delane Easton has endorsed my campaign. Superintendent Tom Torlickson has endorsed my campaign. And former Superintendent Jack O'Connell has endorsed my campaign. Between the three of them, that represents 24 years of experience on that job and in that job. And I'll call upon all of them to help us to uh, how do we get moving quickly and out of the gates in the right direction. And I've made it known that one of the first things I intend to do is look outward and to start a statewide literacy campaign to help us address where we have fallen to in third grade literacy. So I'm laying the foundation for, you know, we're all prioritized my early steps. I'm also laying the foundation for how to strengthen the department. And that means I'll be calling upon uh, the three former superintendents to help us get out of the gates early and looking for places to do things like the superintendent and residence program to help us as we build our, our budget and our staff. You mentioned Tom Torlickson. He just put together recently a task force to make recommendations on charter schools by the end of the year. What recommendations would you like to see in that report? I don't know whether you want to advise the committee, but 
Where do you see uh, some of the reforms that are needed? Well, I think actually any recommendation should be grounded in data and not just, you know, shoot from the hip kind of responses. I think there should be some analysis of how charter schools have performed, how students in charter schools have done vis-a-vis the achievement gap and, you know, according to uh, state standards. We should look at where the challenges have been, and we should look at what the impact of charter schools has been on the, on the overall education uh, network. Um, I think that when we look at that data, that will point to what the recommendations need to be, and I will go from there. I'm, I'm glad that he's put that task force together because there's been no overhaul or review of charter school law since it was passed in California. Things have changed and needs have changed. And in 2018, going into 2019, we need to have a comprehensive review of the impact of charters and the opportunities, if any, that they present. And so from my standpoint, that should be a data-driven conversation. And I'll look forward to what comes out of uh, the recommendations of the task force. And we'll build from there. But getting down to facts, they did have a paper on charter schools. And it did indicate that for some of our most disadvantaged groups, that there was extra learning in charter schools. Well, that's a good place to start. I noted that the report talked about African-American students in charter schools uh, seeing better uh, success as it relates to uh, certain academic findings. And I think that's a place for us to build and to start. And let's face it, there have been charters that have been innovative and um, have had a great track record of success. I've visited many of them throughout the state, and I've said that. And you've voted for Sam as a school board member. I authorized a charter school that demonstrated an incredible track record of supporting African-American and Latino students in Oakland. And when they applied to, to serve students in Richmond, I voted for them. You know, I'm going to always support what's in the best interests of kids. Uh, I do think that the report itself gave us some indications of some improvement, but it's not comprehensive. I think we have to look at the whole impact of how students are doing. And my personal experience has been that for most charter schools, their experience has been very similar to that of traditional public schools. And I've seen data that suggests that. Just to clarify, when we talked in the in the spring, yes. you had said you would consider a pause in charter expansion. I think Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom has said something similar. Although he said if they pass legislation, if the legislature passes legislation that imposes more oversight of charter schools, he would sign that and maybe a pause wouldn't be necessary. Do you still think there should be a pause and under what conditions would you support that? Let me be clear. I will support all of our 6 million students in public school wherever they attend, whether that's a traditional public school or a charter public school. Um, I think that the issue has to do with growth. What is the level of growth that can be sustained in this state? And I don't in think... In individual districts in particular, is that... Uh, in the state. In the I think state there has to be a whole. conversation about uh, the impact of charter school growth on school districts in our state. And I don't think anyone's taken a look at that issue, and I think we should. For districts that I represent, like Oakland, uh, there are those who've estimated that the lost revenue for that district is some $57 million. I've heard similar estimates for San Diego Unified uh, in the neighborhood of $66 million. We all know that LA Unified has the most charter schools of any district in the state and any district in the country. And we have to look at what is the impact of those schools on our districts before we start opening new schools. I think we should be intentional about growth. I think we should ask ourselves, what is the tipping point at which you can't sustain new schools and the schools that already exist? And by that, I mean 
existing charters and traditional public. Well, well that, that's why I was asking whether your concern is more in places like Oakland and L.A. where there are large numbers of charter schools, or there might be school districts where there are no charter schools and might could benefit from that. You suggested you'd think about the, the total number in It's the why I've never called for a moratorium, because I think that there are places where there probably are benefits that should not be hindered. I visited a charter school that serves Native American students on a reservation and does so better than the traditional public school. I visited a charter school in the state that serves African-American students in ways that the neighboring school district has not been able to be as successful. And so uh, I've not called for a moratorium, but I've said we got to be thoughtful. We have to stop and reflect and think about what is the impact, because you cannot open enough schools to serve every single student in this state. And if it's going to have a negative impact, if helping some kids has a negative impact on some other kids, I think we should be thoughtful about where we go. And I think that we should not have the mentality that the way we solve challenges in our schools is to just run away from them and open new schools. We're going to have to dig down and find ways to help students everywhere that they attend. And that's the type of leadership that I'm committed to. I'm not going to pit schools against each other. I'm going to work with schools throughout the state. But I think we have to be thoughtful about that. And yes, I've called for accountability. To me, the pause isn't about accountability. The accountability should exist. Charter schools should do the same things that traditional public schools do vis-a-vis the Brown Act or reporting. If somebody is earning money by being on a board of a charter school, that should be public information. That should be transparent. And let me be clear, I am adamantly opposed to for-profit charter schools. And I co-sponsored legislation that bans them in the state. I don't think anyone And that's should, happened now, right? The, the governor has governor signed, signed it. it and so I don't that think anyone issue is off the table at well, this point. Yeah. Well, there, there are still for-profit charter schools operating in the state. And so the issue is still on the table. No, that, that's it, true. We talked with K-12, Inc., and they said uh, they're not sure that law applied to them. So that issue is still So they're still <laughs> operating, still, and still, that means uh, that they'll probably bring yeah. a lawsuit against that, that piece of legislation. And we've got to make sure that companies that... You know, you you mentioned a company that cheated the state of California that falsified their attendance records and took money um, for students who weren't even present. And there are schools that have earned upwards of $50 million, and then their graduation rates were in 36% or so. We've got to make sure that those kind of abuses don't happen to our kids. Let's turn to test scores of Smarter Balance, Tony, in English language arts and math. This year they were flat. How concerned should we be at this point? And next year, if they're, again, basically flat, what would you do? Well, I think we should be very concerned. I think the scores only show nominal improvement. And given what we know, that there are educators all over the state really trying every single day to turn the needle, I do think that we have to spend some time scratching our heads to say, what is at play here? And what I've called for is uh, spending some time really interpreting the data and and, and saying what's behind the test score, meaning uh, I've been told by many educators who I've met that they've not yet had professional development in the new Common Core standards and that they're still teaching kids in the old ways of memorizing data instead of focusing on critical thinking. Um, encouraging civics. And, you know, we've got to get past the days of teaching to the test. Our kids are more than a test score. We should be in a place where our kids get access to the chance to learn a second language. And I've passed legislation to help support that, that kids learn about civics. They learn about environmental education. Are there testing conditions that are working against our kids? We got to figure out why these low scores persist. And I've, I've heard examples of places in the state where there are students who didn't have computers. Now, these are computer-based tests. How do you take the test if you don't have a computer? 
you know, if the testing conditions are such that hurt our kids, we've got to look at everything. We've got to have those experts who know everything about test analyses to get in there and figure out what does it mean that despite all the efforts of these educators, uh, we're not getting the results that we want to see so that we can chart a new course. The issue of tests, we are moving to a multiple measure system here in California, taking into account more than tests. In fact, that's in the Every Student Succeeds Act. Also trying to, there seems to be a bit of a movement to get away from tests as a measure of how students are doing. How much attention should we be paying to these test scores within the context of this effort to move away from this obsession with testing, which has been part of the culture for so many years? I don't know how we're going to change that overnight. Uh, I still have flashbacks to my own experiences on standardized tests. And I think that there are many things on the standardized test that our students may know the words, but they may not know the usage or the context, especially for our English learners. I think there are still built-in disadvantages to the test, and I think we have to keep working at it until we get it right. Now, look, I support Common Core for this reason. I think it's fair to expect to be able to make a comparison of what an eighth grader in one state should know compared to an eighth grader in another state. I think that's fair. We have to have some benchmark. What I like about the multiple measures uh, is that it goes beyond just the test score. It says look at everything. It says look at school climate and parent engagement and what happens in a school, and I think we have to look at that. But at the end of the day, parents want to know. They want to know, you know, how does the school perform? And we owe it to parents and students and stakeholders to have access to data about how schools perform. And I'm committed to providing as much transparency on those issues. And we keep working at it until we figure out how to help our students improve in the test scores. I guarantee you, if we do this interview in a year from now, we're not going to see dramatic increases. We can't expect to turn the ship in just a year. I'm asking the voters to give me the chance to work on long-term strategies that will help our students. And for every student who enters kindergarten in 2019 and 2020, we should be able to track their progress towards learning to read by third grade. Uh, I've talked about it, and I'll continue to talk about it. We need more investments in early education. We need more investments in, in, in universal preschool and child care programs so that our kids learn to read by third grade. We all know the achievement gap starts before kindergarten, and we should not fool ourselves. If we don't double down on our early education efforts, we're going to continue with an achievement gap that persists. Now, I'm going to also work on programs that are strong literacy intervention programs to help our kids who are far below grade level you know, in literacy. But but we owe it to ourselves and to the kids that we serve to double down on early intervention programs and to make sure we address chronic absenteeism of our youngest students. We know that this uh, you know, prevents our kids from learning to read by third grade, which we know is a gateway skill. You learn to read, you can read to learn anything. And I'm going to be working very hard to make sure that we do more in the early education space to uh, minimize the chances of our kids falling into this achievement gap. We've been talking with Tony Thurman, assemblyman from Richmond and a candidate for state superintendent of public instruction. And we'll talk to you again, perhaps after the election, if you're elected, if one way or another. Thank you. One way or the other, I'm going to be fighting for our kids, whether I'm elected or not. I hope we can continue to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That was Assemblyman Tony Thurman, who is running for the state superintendent of public instruction in California. One of the tricky things about this campaign is that there aren't any real polls at least not public ones, so it's really hard to know who is going to win this one. Well, there's no shortage of ads that people will see on TV between now and Election Day. And as you know, often you can't tell that much from the ads that you see, so uh, it's really uh, 
going to be up to the voters to inform themselves about the candidates. And you can go to our website and read up about the candidates and hear from them in their own voices. We'll be updating the website with where they stand on positions in the next few days. And, of course, we encourage you to check that out before sending in your ballot. Of course, we know many people have already turned in their ballots, but for those of you who haven't, like myself, who wait until the last minute, not too late to uh, phone up on the campaign. And that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. If you like what you hear, write us a review on iTunes. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 